Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Up first here on the show... We got to talk about the Assembly of First Nations annual general meeting. It's being held this week at the Vancouver Convention Center, where we're talking about day one here on the show. Uh, Steeped in drama as there was wonder as to whether or not the AFN National Chief, Roseanne Archibald, the first woman to hold that position, would be in attendance after her suspension while workplace allegations of bullying and harassment against her were investigated. Now, Archibald has pushed back publicly that the allegations are baseless and meant to silence her, calling out the misdeeds or mismanagement within the Assembly of First Nations. It's a very complex puzzle we're unpacking here. And, well, some speculated as to whether or not she'd even be able to attend the meeting. Well, she did. Chief Roseanne Archibald was, in fact, in attendance and opened the AGM. Here's some of what she had to say, beginning with a clear statement of her status. I am relentless in my pursuit of truth. And let me assure you that the struggle for transparency, accountability, and truth is an honorable and worthy cause. The National Chief did not shy away from addressing the allegations against her. I am not suspended. Regional chiefs do not have the authority to suspend a national chief. That's why they're bringing tail end, working backwards, to bring you this motion, number three, because they're trying to cover their tracks. Chief Roseanne Archibald went on to address what must change within the Assembly in her view. The AFN Secretariat and the regional chiefs and the NIB Corporation, as Chief Prosper talked about, is a colonial structure. It follows non-Indigenous laws. It's not grounded in our culture. It's not grounded in our values. It's not grounded in our traditions. It is a non-Indigenous corporation. All right, and minced no words as to just how serious this moment is. The current structure is a threat. It is a danger. That's my oath that I am here to tell you about the dangers and threats to your sovereignty, to your jurisdiction, to your rights, to the survival of your communities. And as it stands now, the National Indian Brotherhood Corporation is a threat to all of those things. Again, that's the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald. And now we want to bring in the Executive Director of the First Nations Summit. Cheryl Casimir is with us on the line. Thank you for doing this. Good morning, Jody. Thank you for having me. What do you see unfolding at this AGM? Well, I hope that um, as a result of yesterday's decision by the Chief to um, oppose the resolution that was tabled to suspend the national chief, that we can now start looking forward and create a path that's going to allow us to do the work that is necessary. You know, chiefs have traveled um, 
far and wide to be here this week, and they have pressing issues that need to be addressed, and um, they need to provide the direction to the national chief and the executive so that they can address the issues that are um, impacting their communities. So a couple of things I want to ask you about here, Cheryl, and I, I honestly, I, I, I raise my hands in gratitude to you for, for taking the time today because this is a very tumultuous time. Uh, certainly uh, watching the live feed yesterday and then it was halted and then, you know, there were reports of, of real upset at this AGM. Let's get to the, to the actual facts of what is happening here. You mentioned there was a vote yesterday to not suspend or oust the national chief. Roseanne mm-hmm. Archibald. Today, however, there is a confidence vote, schedule, vote scheduled, correct? Yes. So what, what does that entail? Well, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of resolutions, and I think it's going to be a matter of process. So there is the resolution that's talking about non-confidence, but there's also a resolution before that that is talking about putting in place um, steps to address some of the serious concerns that um, a lot of the chiefs um, have on, on their mind. So talking about the forensic audit, uh, talking about um, the investigations, and just trying to set a path so that we can move forward. So I'm hoping that that resolution is going to come first. So right. the non-confidence one is not even going to be an issue. So let's go back to that. The forensic audit that Chief Roseanne Archibald has uh, requested or, or mandated be held of the Assembly of First Nations to just, you know, open up the books. Let's see what's there, who's being paid what, how monies have been uh, distributed in this organization and the investigation surrounding uh, some of the rumors, I guess, that that we've been hearing, uh, million-dollar payouts, because Chief Roseanne Archibald did not mince words after the suspension was announced, where she right. was was told to not speak, and yet she said, I'm going to speak. Um, can, can you give us some idea in your learned, learned perspective as Executive Director of the First Nation Summit, uh, Cheryl, can you give us some idea of what's at play here? Is this uh, an establishment that's pushing back on somebody who wants to open things up and, and have transparency, or is there bullying and harassment that is happening behind the scenes? What what, what do you see unfolding? Um, what can you tell us that you see unfolding? Well, we don't, the chiefs really don't have all of the information. Um, we've requested copies of the legal opinion that was provided that, um, you know, that that was given to the executive that directed them or gave them the opinion to move forward and suspend the national chief. So the chiefs are a a little bit of a disadvantage with that. Right. But what we are saying, though, is that if there are um, allegations of harassment or bullying amongst the staff with any organization, uh, we want to make sure that that's not happening. So we have directed and spoke directly to uh, National Chief that that investigation needs to continue and that she needs to be a full participant in that as well. She can't be silenced in that. Um, Secondly, there there seems to be uh, support to move forward with a forensic audit. So I haven't heard anybody say, no, that we don't support it, we don't want to see that happen. Um, I think that, you know, everybody wants to know and, um, you know, exactly what is happening so that we have 
all of the facts and we have the information necessary to make informed decisions. So if I'm hearing you correctly, I think this all makes sense, is that all of the information has yet to be uh, shared with all of the regional chiefs in order for there to be uh, a series of decisions that might come uh, as a result of full disclosure. Uh, what we've heard from Chief Roseanne Archibald, the national chief, is that some of these accusations might be tied to the fact that she wants to halt some movement of funds in places and, and in ways that she feels uh, are unwarranted within the Assembly of First Nations structuring. What do we know about that? She's thrown out a, throwing around the number of a million dollar payouts. Uh, what do we know about that? Well, the information that's shared with the chiefs is quite vague, right? Because it's it's confidential, so we don't know um, exactly who is involved. We know that it's staff, um, but who it is, we're, we don't know. And I don't think that that you know is really important because you want to protect the confidentiality of staff that are that are coming forward. Right. But um, of course, yeah, she has been public about the fact that she's been asked to do a million dollar payout to four individuals. Um, from what I've heard. And, you know, that's the information that we're hoping is going to come to light um, when we have an audit conducted. Jody Vance with you, back with Cheryl Casimir, the Executive Director of the First Nations Summit. And Cheryl, before the break, I was saying how I want to be a humble learner. I want to understand the importance of having a woman be the national First Nations, Assembly of First Nations chief, when Roseanne Archibald was duly elected for that role. It was big news. And certainly just 20 days from the arrival of Pope uh, Francis on his visit here to address some of the horrors uh, the church has um, had befallen on uh, Indigenous First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples in Canada. Um, Can you give us an idea of the role of a matriarch within First Nations? Well, women, it all depends on, on the, the nation. Um, they determine how their governance structure is, but women have always played an important role um, in, in governance uh, within our communities. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a big deal to have the first woman national chief elected to the national organization. Um, you know, that was history in the making when, when that happened. So it's, not- it's a role that was, you know, carried out um, by a man. Right. But not checking a box, a diversity box, if you will, within First Nation. I think it's really important also, Cheryl, uh, I wish I had more time to talk with you about all of this because <laughs> I really, I, I'm, I want to learn. I want to soak up what I don't know here. And I think it's important what you said off the top is every nation is different. To think that First Nations is a monolithic unit of a section of society is erroneous, right? It sure is, yes. Um, You know, we've got here in British Columbia, there's 204 um, First Nations and each one is different. For example, um, I'm from the Tanaka Nation and we have a language that is an isolate, meaning that it's not linked to any other language in the world. Um, and yet, you know, our neighbors who are either um or Okanagan, they also have their own distinct features and a different language as well. 
So, yeah, you can't really tick a box um, for everybody in this nation. You can't try to fit us in a, in a box either. Right. I really appreciate you taking some time out, helping us navigate through what is unfolding with the uh, National Assembly of First Nations. You've, you've very much helped us today and we'll stay engaged. Cheryl, thanks for this. Thank you very much. Uh, speaking of phone lines, though, yesterday on the program, we had Paul Sullivan, property tax expert and Ryan ULC principal. Uh, property tax experts have an ability to look at what's happening in cities like the city of Vancouver and and make it simple enough for those like me to understand uh, what is happening or be ever more frustrated by the inactive uh, leaders in trying to create a more affordable city of Vancouver. Paul Sullivan, you stacked our phone board so much yesterday. We had to have you back today. Really appreciate you joining us here. Hey, good morning. That's good to hear. Glad people are interested. They are. Well, yesterday, you know, being the property tax deadline and, and you know, obviously uh, we were trying to just alert citizens that it could cost you a significant uh, hit to your wallet if you're late in paying your property taxes, particularly in the city of Vancouver. But one of the things that really lit things up was just how expensive it is in Vancouver. You started to explain some of the some of the complexities about the city of Vancouver and why it seems to be such a struggle to afford a place to live or rent. And, and there's real battle between renters and owners because of the affordability or lack thereof when it comes uh, to housing in this city. I do want to open up the phone lines now. So if you want to call in, got a question or a comment, we're doing this with Paul Sullivan. I won't leave you hanging on the line if I can possibly get you on the program. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Paul, let's start with what was a big piece of yesterday's conversation, just how much the property taxes have gone up particularly in the city of Vancouver over the last number of years? Yeah, well, we, we're, we've seen about a, over a 20% increase in the past four years and over 25% in five years. Um, you know, and, and the discussion is about core services and how this council in particular, with so many different agendas to, to try and solve, um, can't keep the budgets under control. And, 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 you know, we can't pay for everything through taxing homeowners. And, you know, we have so many new taxes. We have additional school tax. We have speculation tax. We have empty home tax. We have property transfer tax. We have foreign buyers tax. And we have a foreign buyer ban. And if you think these things don't affect renters, you don't understand the dynamics of the marketplace because when people can't afford to buy homes, they look to rent. And we have a shortage of rental. And now we have so much government policy that's, that is detracting from building rental. The problem is spiraling. And all of this is at odds with federal policies about my immigration and, and, and bringing a half a million people into Canada. So we, we are in a cluster of government policies and taxation that's going to continue to frustrate this issue. And you mentioned how particularly the city of Vancouver has a great amount of city-owned property that could be rather quickly expedited at the very least in creating affordable housing. Yeah, they have hundreds of properties. And here's the problem. I've been talking with developers for the past 24 hours. And I talked to one developer this morning that dropped a 600-unit rental project site. Uh, other developers putting rental towers on hold. And so the problem is, is land costs are so high and there's so much uncertainty with when the 
shoe's going to drop on another government policy that affects the performer and doesn't get these projects started, that the private sector is almost at the point where they're not going to be able to deliver homes anymore. So maybe it's up to the up to municipalities and provincial and federal financing, and, and they need to get involved in the housing game because they have land costs which are virtually zero. And if that's the problem they need to solve, then they need to start building their own sites. We're with Paul Sullivan, property tax expert and Ryan ULC principal, and the phone lines are open for you. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Richard in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk on this, and I think uh, it's a really good topic to be discussing prior to the civic election. My property taxes have gone up a 1,000% here in Vancouver since I bought my house in 1983. But, you know, part of the problem, I attended a purpose-built uh, rental forum in Vancouver at City Hall, and a lot of the money that goes into purpose-built rentals comes from basically pension plans, right? And they they basically want a return on their investment. And I think Paul's right in the sense that a lot of times they the zoning's there, and they, they can tell right off the top whether it's feasible or not, but it takes three to five years for these yeah. things to be approved, and that's why the purpose, they need a return on their money. But anyways, there's all sorts of problems in Vancouver, but I want to talk about the dirty little trick that city council keeps on doing on residential neighborhoods. As you know, they forced basically secondary suites and laneway houses and also increased the total FSR on people's property. So I have the typical single-family house a small house that was built during the 60s in Vancouver, now I get to pay for the, the land lift value on what could be built on my property as opposed to what's actually there. So now that's why I'm getting taxed to death. And I, what we need to do is return to a system where you actually get taxed for what's on your property, not what you could build on your property. And all these guys at City Hall, they love this little game because it puts more and more money into their coppers to supplement all the money that they're getting from the development community in the city to get reelected. Richard, great call. Paul, highest and best use. Boy, that's killing a lot of businesses. And it's really hurting people who have no interest in selling their home. As Richard said, his his property taxes have gone up a thousand percent since he bought in 1983. He wants to stay in his home. Yeah, I mean, we know this problem well. And uh, what, what maybe Richard's not considering is uh, multiple levels of government are now talking about land value recapture. So these homeowners that think they that are actually right now paying the property taxes on these elevated land values, government's looking at that and saying, hey, wait a minute, it's our policies that are creating density, creating this 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 value. And when that value goes up, we want it. It's ours. So they're looking to basically expropriate that land lift from property owners. And that's the next shoe to drop on that issue. All right. I'm Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. And we are back to the phone lines with Paul Sullivan, property tax expert and Ryan ULC principal. As we lit up the phones yesterday when talking about the property tax deadline, it it opened up the conversation and you really wanted to get in on it. If you want to call in, you have a story to tell, you have a question for Paul, 604-280-9898 is the number to call or star 9898 is an easy call and a free one on your cell. John and Burnaby, you're up next. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Question. I bought two acres of land to develop in Abbotsford two and a half years ago. I paid property tax on raw land 
like undeveloped land, 40,000, 60,000. And yesterday, well, Monday, I gave him a check for 74,000. School tax, policing, it's raw land. And I've never had anybody explain to me why I'm paying taxes for something I'm not getting. I'm not being cheap. I'm just asking a question. Good question, John. Thank you. Paul? Well, John, you need to be careful because they're, they're going to be after you for additional school tax and speculation tax because if you're holding land and you're not actively developing it, you're subject to those new taxes. And if you're in the city of Vancouver, you're also going to be subject to empty home tax. And what we're not realizing here is government's fees and charges on development sites is now well over 30%. CMHC released a report yesterday saying over 20%. They're low. It's over 30 all right, let's get back to the phones. Uh, Nadine in North Vancouver, you are up next. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, this is a great topic. I have a question for Paul. Um, so in my group of friends, we're of the age where we can defer our taxes. Ours went up by about $4,300 this year. And I'm just wondering, is a good strategy to start deferring our house taxes? Well, I mean, it, you, you do. I mean, personally, I, I pay my taxes if I can afford them. But uh, if it's an affordability issue, it's not a good option for you. It's a low interest rate paid to the government. And you're not alone because the number of people and the value of the deferred taxes has doubled in the past few years. And to me, is a clear indicator that uh, homeowners just simply can't afford to pay anymore. We've got to let that sink in for a second. It's doubled the tax deferral. Wow. We're hundreds of millions of dollars per year have been added to the t- provincial tax deferral program by homeowners that can't afford to pay their taxes. Wow. Okay. Regular uh, caller to the show. I recognize your name, Dev. Dev in Vancouver. You're up next. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Welcome. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Fantastic. But you may, uh, could you explain in layman's terms what you meant earlier that the, the governments want to um, come after the inc- their policies are creating land value increases and they want to come after that value. Can you explain that in layman's terms so we can all understand, please? Yeah, it's being talked about at municipal level and provincial level and even federal. And what it's called land value capture or land lift. It, it's what home builders or developers have to deal with on every project on, on the form of a CAC, meaning if we provide additional density, you're going to pay for it. So the principle, though, as it applies to homeowners and property owners, is that when they bring in a plan that creates land lift, they say the property owner does not own that lift. It will be paid to the, the, the taxing jurisdiction when the property gets developed. So land lift is, is, is simply the product of a, of, a, of a policy change that creates land value, and you pay that to the government. Okay, so let's talk that through a little bit, Paul, because we're seeing that with the Broadway plan, right? With the, with the subway that's coming, there is upzoning happening, there is a, you know, changes to where and what you can build, and that is going to increase value on some properties. You're saying that there will be taxation associated with that increased value? That that's the discussion. We don't have a formal legislation or bylaw on it, but that's what they're after. It, like I say, if, if you're if you're a complex redevelopment, you 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 absolutely already have to deal with land lift. Um, but yeah. it, this is more about other properties. So, yeah. um, 
when it happens or where it's going to happen is uncertain, but it is, it is a live conversation. This is a reason why talking about it on radio and, and seeing it written about in the newspaper, seeing it on, uh, you know, the evening news uh, is so important to, to, to stay engaged and understand what the conversations behind the scenes are. I want to get to the home equity tax on primary residents and how the federal government has been studying this. I've got my air quotes up uh, in terms of uh, the last bastion where people are like, I have bought this piece of property. It's been my safest investment. I'm okay with having to, you know, pay for what I'm living in. But if I sell this investment, my real estate investment that I've had maybe since 1983, as one of our callers had, um, do you believe that there will ultimately be taxation on primary residence, uh, property tax, uh, and, 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 and equity? In that, or what? What do you call that? Sorry, I'm I'm blanking on the the technical well, term. Yeah, yeah, I mean a home equity tax, and you know, I, I this is yeah. a real raw point for a lot of a lot of people. Um, you know, they made all sorts of sacrifices in their life, investing their after tax dollars, paying their mortgages, and not going on holidays, and you know, the, they did these the, these things because this is their future, this is their retirement plan. So, you know, Trudeau denied that they were into a home equity tax in the form of a capital gain, but what he Trudeau through the CMHC has been financing is a study by UBC professors about taxing people's home equity on a certain value threshold of $1 million. And, and frankly, I, I'm happy to see that the conversation is coming down to the $1 million level because people might start paying attention because it's going to affect them. So effectively, what the pro- proposition is, is a 1% per year tax on your home if you're over a million dollars set aside. And when you sell the property, you pay that to the government. Wow, that's a complexity. We're doing some math on that, especially when the what is the average cost or average value of a home in in Metro Vancouver, and particularly the city of Vancouver? Certainly, we've seen that go up over what one point two million. Is it higher than that now? Well, I mean, you know, these numbers you have to segregate. You know, detached houses versus attached homes and, and condos. Right. So. You know, I think people know homes in Vancouver are three million dollars and up, and and on average, you know, including condos, half a million to a million, um, and and these taxes, you know, ten thousand dollars per year. Uh, you know, how many years you want to live in your home? You're going to be setting aside hundreds of thousands of dollars to the government when you sell your property. Yeah. Welcome back, Jody Vanson for Mike Smith today. Mike is back tomorrow. Got to dip in here with my good friend, David Mosscrop on the subject of the Saanich bank robbery, robbery, excuse me, believe it or not, those 22 year old brothers that targeted as many police officers allegedly as they possibly could in this horrifying attempted robbery. Uh, The assailants, as we now know, killed at the scene, of course, but radicalized young people. We are seeing this more and more. Indeed, you just heard it on Gord's news. How much does fear and anger-based political rhetoric play into these tragic events? We're going to welcome the respective from the political scientist, the columnist for the Globe and Mail and Washington Post, and author of the book, Too Dumb for Democracy. Good friend David Moskrop is with us. Hi, David. Good morning. I had to do the math in my head. 
Still morning in the West, right? (laughs) Still morning. We want you home. Leave Ottawa. Get back here. Okay, okay, fine. I was I was going through your Twitter. I want everybody to to follow you on Twitter because you're an excellent follow. At David underscore Mosscrop is your Twitter handle for those who are on that platform. Let's talk about a tweet that you put out about how there is blood on the hands of the politicians uh, who use that rhetoric, that radicalizing rhetoric, uh, when it comes to what we saw happen in Saanich. Uh, and and certain folks in the media, not not you, <laughs> not not the people uh, that that most of us listen to day to day, but some. And this isn't just a Canadian problem. This is a problem in the United States. It's a problem elsewhere in the world. Uh, when we adopt a kind of rhetoric of of a politics of resentment, of a politics of taking back the country, of a politics of uh, you know tearing down institutions, uh, uh, we feed into a kind of dangerous, often paranoid politics that is pretty common in a lot of spaces, especially online, uh, where people are seeking some sort of uh, you know, point of resonance, some sort of answer to the difficult questions they're asking about why things seem so awful to them. And um, this stuff resonates with them. And we've got no programs in, in place to try to de-radicalize people. In fact, what we seem to have is de facto programs in place to radicalize them. And when you go through the rhetoric that these people seem to spout, um, you see it matches a lot of what certain political and media elites are talking about in, in the public sphere. And it's extraordinarily dangerous. You mentioned south of the border yesterday with all of what had happened on uh, the 4th of July, the, the mass shootings, uh, the, the, the terror really on what is typically a day of celebration of the greatest democracy in the world in the United States and, and how that has shifted within that one day on the heels of January uh, 6th. So we've watched those hearings unfold. And I flip around from all the major cable networks just to see what everybody's talking uh, about or what talking points they're using. And I did go to Fox News, as I do. I get a lot of people who send me notes that you never, you never watch Fox News. How do you know? Well, I actually monitor all news outlets, as do uh, scholars like you, David, honestly. Like we are, it is our job to know what everybody is talking about. And I tuned into Tucker Carlson last night and he actually blamed women mm-hmm. for ruining the mental health of men and causing them to become violent with guns so the guns aren't the problem it's the women sure who are the problem I, and oh, I just well, thought, okay yeah. i've officially seen it all i've officially now seen it all well it used to be video games and then yes. well no well you know it wasn't video games anymore well, then it was television well, that's not television it's the movies well it's nice. not the movies no it must be women or trans yeah. folks right i mean you, right. you know this was what these folks do they find a scapegoat they find someone they can bully they can find someone to blame for all the rotten problems in their lives and the lives of their listeners and they'll scapegoat and, and abuse those folks instead of dealing with the real problems the real problems that are tied to say a culture of of gun violence that is driven by go figure access to guns uh, mm-hmm. or you know a market system that exploits people and makes it extraordinarily difficult for them to get through the day or, you know, generations of racism and misogyny of transphobia of, of, um, uh, you know, sexism that are baked into political and social and cultural institutions that just get retaught over and over again in the house, sometimes in the classroom, uh, often in, in the entertainment we, we consume. 
you know, we, we don't want to look at those things. It's got to be something simpler. It's like, well, it must be this group of people. And then look who ends up getting targeted in many cases in, in instances of violence, right? It's these people that are these groups that are being scapegoated and attacked in, in media and political spaces. And so it's part of the reason I get so frustrated about this is because politicians and certain folks in the media treat this like it's a game or like it's an exercise or it's entertainment as if people's real lives and livelihoods are on the line because they are. Right. Watch me manipulate the masses. There seems to be an element of that. Watch me move this base towards my rhetoric and, and use it to grab power. Absolutely it is. And now look, sometimes they believe it. (laughs) Um, Sometimes they're they're true believers of of this hatred and the vitriol and, and, um, you know, silly narratives about taking back your freedom as if your freedom was ever taken from you in any meaningful way, other than, by the way, not being able to pay your bills because you're not paid enough, right. which is a real case of, of your freedom being taken from you, but that's not the government. Well, not directly. Um, or then, you know, or it's sort of a, a cynical game to try to win power to get viewers. And it sometimes works, uh, but it leaves everybody worse off power or you get the viewers and what do you do with that? Well, you can't do anything because your cheap and easy answers aren't going to solve any problems. You're only going to make things worse. Part of the reason I've been so frustrated with certain political campaigns here during the CPC leadership race, you know, making promises and suggesting there are cheap and easy ways to fix big problems that will never be adequate. They'll never deliver. And what happens to people when you've made them angry people, when you've made them promises and then can't deliver? They get more angry. Yeah. And that just stokes the fire of distrust. Exactly. So what do we do here in Canada about this? Like, is there somewhere we should start? I think right off the top, you mentioned we don't have any place or governing body. I I don't want to use the word government. We have no place to de-escalate the radicalization and the rhetoric around that. What must what must change here, in your opinion? Well, there's there's quite a bit. I mean, you know, first of all, is is recognizing the problem we have an extraordinary problem with the radicalization of not exclusively but primarily young white men uh this is a group of people who are susceptible to radicalization are being radicalized especially online so part of it is naming the problem and and knowing where it's coming from is okay well we need to do something about it because this is what it is and here's where we find a lot of it young white men on the internet that is getting into those spaces and figuring out how you how you de-radicalize. Now, there are experts, I'm not one of them, who know how de-radicalization works. <laughs> so we start listening to them. We start taking uh, the things seriously and saying, okay, we need to, uh, certain rules in the platforms. The platforms need to do a huge amount of that work in locating yeah. this stuff, tracking it down, flagging it, and making sure that you know, there's a response to it when it happens. And we can't simply police our way out of this either, though. This is the flip side of it. Our police don't have an exactly sterling record at doing this. And so we need to start looking at ways in communities of de-radicalization, closer to where people live with experts who know how to do this outside of the criminal justice system, um, just because, you know, more and deeper criminalization isn't going to help. It, it hasn't helped yet. So go to those experts and say, okay, what's the programming look like when we can identify this stuff to go in and, and to do that? And then, of course, there's holding our politicians and folks in the media to a higher standard so they're not out there stoking these fears making sure that we don't support them, making sure that other political and media elites don't platform them, which a lot of them are doing right now because they're buddies, because they hang, hang out yeah. at the same cocktail parties. They chat with each other on text, right? Part of it is calling out those right. folks too and making sure they're not you know, letting them in the back door. 
Yeah, swift and meaningful consequences to the disinformation chain is certainly a big piece of this. David Mosscrop, as always, I appreciate having the opportunity to have you join us on the show. Thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Going to bring you a little behind the scenes, how we uh, put together the shows each day here on the station. I got a text from Eric Chapman, show contributor, uh, also to Corey Latondra, our, our producer, our lead producer on the show, uh, talking about what was moving on Twitter with regard to Vancouver Park Board taking away logs on Vancouver beaches. Okay, so it's iconic that Vancouver has logs on our beaches. We can get into the history of that. The woman behind that actually passed away uh, last year, um, and we celebrated her because it does make us unique here that we have those logs to lean against. It really is something special. Uh, you know, being born and raised here, I didn't realize how special it was until I got to beaches where there were no logs, and I thought, where am I supposed to sit? <laughs> I want a log. I want a place to. It's almost like a, a an au naturel picnic table. Um, but in going back and forth with Eric on this, and he shared with me a document that I read about the whys, because I understood why logs were removed from Vancouver beaches when the pandemic first hit, making more space for people to spread out. We wanted all stay at least, you know, two or three meters apart. And, and so I looked at this document that looked really official from the park board and it outlined all the reasons and the reasons I honestly, I thought it was something from the onion. I thought I was being punked. So I do have contacts at the park board. They're not part of the Green Cope Alliance that seems to push through these things that make most citizens' heads uh, spin, shall we say. But I, I reached out to John Cooper. In fact, I called John. I said, I just need to check with you because I feel like I'm being punked here. And John said, let me look into it. I'll get right back to you. And so we had a back and forth. And I said, can you come on the radio with me and even take calls on this? And he said, you know what, Jody? Always happy to come on and take calls. The NPA Park Board Commissioner and candidate for Vancouver Mayor, John Cooper, joins us on the line. John, thank you for doing this. Oh, good morning, Jody. Thanks for having me. Feeling like I was being punked. At first, you said, no, this isn't official. I was at a meeting last night. We were talking about logs on the beach, but there was no discussion of reducing the numbers or not returning the logs to the beaches now that we are all moving into a new sense of normalcy here. Can you talk through how this went down from your perspective now that I've given our listener my perspective? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, you, you had reached out to me and said, is this for real? And, and I, I hadn't heard anything about it at all. Um, it just happened to come up slightly in a park board meeting on Monday night where the persons with disabilities were coming to speak to us about uh, playgrounds. And uh, one of the speakers from that committee mentioned that even something like uh, going to the beach, uh, she happened to be at crutches and was able to work her way across the sand and uh, found that the logs were really helpful getting up and down uh, for her. Otherwise, she wouldn't be able to enjoy the beach. So, I, you know, it just kind of registered in, in my mind. And I thought, well, that, that's something I'd never thought about. So I thought, you know, there's all kinds of reasons maybe why those, those, those logs are there. So then when you called, it was like, no, I hadn't heard anything from an operational side. Not that I, we always would, you know, lots of things happen at the park board that are, that are operational, but it sort of struck a nerve. And I, cause I know these logs are very iconic to Vancouver residents. And certainly in my lifetime, they've always been there. And, you know, when you go to other places in the world, there, there isn't logs and, and, um, you know, we just roll a little differently here and it's kind of part of, of, of Vancouver. So I was a bit concerned when I heard this. So I did a little deeper digging and got in touch with our park operation staff and uh, 
Then there was a memo that just came out to commissioners about 10 minutes ago, which I think I forwarded to you, which is largely the same, largely the same as what you heard yesterday with just a little bit of nuance around, um, you know, concerns about persons with disability and maybe we'll have to look at this and maybe it's not a fully, fully uh, planned idea. What concerns me is, you know, the, the initial thought was, well, we did it because of COVID. But if you look at Stanley Park, the same kind of reasoning was used by this group, uh, by the Cope Green Alliance, to actually basically ram through this um, change in the transportation plan for, for Stanley Park. So there's a bit of a trend here happening, which I think is concerning. The public needs to be involved and have a say when we make big changes to our parks system. And this, I think, is a big change. So I'm very concerned that this kind of happened under the radar, and I think we need to... Uh, push back on it for sure. You know what? We're with John Cooper, who is the MPA Park Board Commissioner and candidate for mayor of Vancouver. We should point that out as well. But we have you here uh, on your wearing your park board hat firmly. Um, and I agree with you. I, I think that the the taxpayer, the general public, the citizens, not just of this city, but the people who use our iconic beaches, who are who use Stanley Park and and look at that as part of what we love about living here and being involved in the decisions that that really fundamentally change our experience at these locations. Uh, that they there just seems to be this arbitrary move toward what's easiest on paper for a couple of people. And I'm going to read off some of what you referenced in that letter that that you forwarded to me. It says, Dear Commissioners, in response to several inquiries and comments made at the recent Park Board meetings, the purpose of this memo is to provide an update in information regarding logs on Vancouver beaches, which were originally removed in response to the pandemic and the need for social distancing. The logs have since been kept off beaches in light of several learnings that arose from that change. It goes on to reference, and I'm going to paraphrase here because it's rather long, but safety and how since removing the logs, staff have found there to be fewer needles or broken glass and other hazards, uh, provides that clearer sight lines across the beaches for rangers and operations and aquatic staff and the police. Uh, fewer hazards regarding individuals that may be behind a log. Often morning work is delayed uh, because inspections were require- inspectors were required to check if any individuals were behind a log. It starts to sound like parody here. Cleanli- cleanliness is a piece of this. Previously, people would just walk away from their trash. I would suggest that perhaps we need more trash receptacles as a, as a way to, to push back on the lack of cleanliness on our beaches and in our parks. Uh, maintenance, the logs were removed so crews were able to, to groom sand more frequently. I mean, I, I, these, this just goes on. I understand the, the space. I understand, and John, you did mention that there were the more, more accessibility mats going on our beaches. That is very yeah, important. Which is a good thing, a and then we need to make it a, is a, very good a thing. big yes. adjustments for that. That makes total sense, right? But we don't need to remove two-thirds, if not three-quarters of the logs that are on our beaches in order to make it easier to comb the beach and groom them. This just seems so backwards. No, we've been, we've been, we've been doing it for years. You know, these machines are used to going around the logs. They're pretty well in a straight row. It, it sounds a little bit like uh, uh, trying to come up with reasons to justify this. But I, I would go further and say, you know, we do more consultation on when we're putting up uh, you know, a pub, uh, a garden, a little uh, community yeah. garden in a park or something like that, where we have, you know, 100 speakers show up to, to, to discuss that. It recently happened in the, the Harborview neighborhood. So, you know, when we're talking about something as iconic as our beaches and, and you know, all of the things that we 
come to enjoy in Vancouver, whether it be the beaches, whether it be access to Stanley Park, whether it be, you know, the closure of Beach Avenue, which was a game, was uh, sort of justified around the pandemic to move cyclists off the seawall onto the street, but now it's, it seems to be permanent. So I'm really concerned that these, what they call learnings, are, mere, are, are, learnings. are purely just this uh, sort of a, a backfiller or a sort of a reason to be able to get away with this stuff. And then all of a sudden it's gone and everybody goes, well, what happened? Well, you know, it was yeah. COVID and there's a bunch of justification and it's done, it's done, don't worry about it. Well, I think we should worry about it. And, you know, as the mayor, I think we need to really put the shine back on our city. I mean, you look at the boulevards that aren't cut right now, and that's a, that's a combined city and park board, and I certainly voted against that. But the things that we've come to expect and love about Vancouver, you know, I was just down on, on Hastings Street this morning, and the tents, you can't even walk down the sidewalk. You go into Gastown. No tourist is going to want to go to Gastown in the condition that it's in. We need to really step things up instead of taking things away that we've come to value so much in our city. And, and, and people from around the world love to come here and see what we've done. I mean, let's get back to basics and let's stop this foolishness as far as I'm concerned. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we're continuing our discussion about logs on beaches in Vancouver. Now, it's an iconic piece of our beach experience here, and it has been for many, many years. And uh, perhaps Park Board Commissioner John Cooper, our guest right now, could give us an idea of how that came to be. It was a horticulturalist who who brought the log idea to Vancouver beaches, right? I, I'm not exactly sure of, of the, the full history. I just know that it's been, been around ever since I've been going to Vancouver beaches, and I've always appreciated them. There you go. Okay, well, it was a horticulturalist who had the idea, because we have so many deadheads, and there was a time where logging booms came right through up into False Creek for processing here uh, in the city of Vancouver. It was within my lifetime that that happened, and logs would wash up on the beach all the time, and it became... Uh, sort of an issue to remove those logs. And instead, we used them in a creative way. And and they've even been used as art. If you go down to Spanish banks, you can see how some people take it upon themselves to to find the larger stumps and, and turn them into furniture that stays on the beach. It's really a cool part of what makes Vancouver exponentially more beautiful than many other cities across this world. Uh, yeah. John, it's good to have you here. And the phone lines are open for those who want to chime in on logs on Vancouver beaches and how the park board has, it appears, made a rather arbitrary decision to uh, keep the pandemic state of our beaches at play with many fewer logs for families to to congregate around. And our first caller is uh, Dave from Vancouver. Welcome, Dave. Uh, good morning, Jody. Good morning, John. A um, couple of things. The log issue to me is seemingly symptomatic of everything that this current park board and the Cope Green Alliance people have pushed. So anything they want to do gets done very quickly. Anything that takes time, um, like John advocating for the separation of sewers so our beaches keep clean, takes forever. Um, you know, whether it be fountains, and, and I can cite several instances where water mains have broken and it's taken weeks, if not months, to fix, spewing tens or hundreds of thousands of gallons of water down the sewer. doesn't matter, but it takes weeks, months, or years to fix fountains. Things like that. It's just endemic of lack of priorities, I think, are for what people really cherish in the city. And you're quite right. I used to work for the, for the city pound many years ago in university, and I'd walk, you know, beach patrol was part of my route. And we watched them, you know, the front end loaders um, come in, move the logs. The, the sand sifter would come in and comb the beach, and they put the logs back. And I can't help but wonder how much of this is budgetary and how much of this is just a continuing degradation of the 
of the park board by city staff. Um, I attended a park board meeting the other night, and it was kind of sad to see city the city bureaucrats dictating to park board um, more or less what they wanted. And of course, the board passed it and it had to do with something else. But um, it was sad to see people not stand up for the autonomy of the park board. And we've seen it more and more over the last four years. And of course, it's caused all kinds of other issues. And I think um, I'd like to you know, hope that John will stand up for core services and that a newly elected park board will put priorities of residents first, you know, clean and safe parks, um, making sure that you know, facilities are safe and maintained appropriately, uh, that kind of thing, so that um, people can enjoy back. what we have. Yeah, I'm with you, Thank Dave. You. I'm with you, Dave. I want to fix things. And you know, John, the last time we spoke on the air, I think we were talking about Kids Pool, and I was really upset about the timeline that was associated with that. There was good news on Kids Pool. They realized, okay, you know what? High demand. People want it. This should be a priority. Let's move. Let's get it going. The The engineers were able to check it out and say, hey, the damage wasn't as extensive as we thought it was. We can fix it. Let's get on it. Priority one, yeah. check. Agreed. And, Agreed and the fountains are this... But, but- F- I think are a similar piece a, of this, right? Yeah, Dave brings up a really good point, though, of the, uh, like, for instance, we just went through the whole Van and Aqua uh, cons- consultation. What we realized from the public was we need more outdoor pools. Yet what happened was Park Board sent up their budget to the city, and uh, the city came back, and it, we've got no outdoor pools being built in the next four-year capital plan, even though that's a priority of the Park Board. And so, you know, we're seeing we need to get some real strongly elected. I think if we can elect a, an NPA common sense group on the park board, I think we'll see positive change. It, it, the park board is a great institution. We just need to get active to soft the board and get people on that board who are concerned about delivering great services and great parks, safe parks, clean parks, good facilities that people can enjoy, get kids swimming. That's a key thing we need to be doing. And we need to be building some pools. These are these are priorities. Um, that need to get done. And um, that's certainly something I'll certainly be pushing for if I have the opportunity to be in Mayor of Vancouver. Okay, let's just quickly touch on what Dave was mentioning as well in terms of the budget piece of this puzzle. I'm hearing rumblings that uh, some of the big issues at our beaches are stemming around the fact that there's no budget for lifeguards. It's not even about finding lifeguards to have those roles. It's about paying them. Well, we've you know we've seen a, we've certainly seen a shift with uh, with all the with the encampments and various things. A lot of operational money has been going to managing those uh, encampments. Whether you know some are some are gone now, but certainly the Crab Park encampment. We've had the Oppenheimer encampment. We've had the uh, Strathcona Park encampment. So there's only an infinite number. There's only so many dollars available. A finite number of dollars available. So when you shift from one thing to another. The other thing is this Green Cope Alliance removed parking in Stanley Park to the tune of almost $2 million in revenue because of the change to the bike, uh, the transportation status of Stanley Park. So that Let's just call it what it is, is a bike is lane for that $2 so, million. Dollars, yeah, it's, yeah, so the cost of building bucks. a bike lane, yeah, at plus, plus the parking, the, the la- plus the, the disruption. From the loss yeah. of parking, right? So all these things have an effect, and, and, and one thing touches on another, and Dave's 100% right. We need to get back to the priorities of what do people really want from their parks and recreational system. And I think it's the same thing across the city, quite frankly. Um, yeah, that's definitely sport- on the ballot come October 15th. John, I'm sorry I'm out of time, but I got to uh, I gotta just say the best way to have your say is to vote 
on October 15th, 2022 for those, you know, will do the things you're, you're you want most for your city and transparency is seems to be at the top of the list for so many. Uh, John, I appreciate you coming on, taking calls as you always consistently do as park board commissioner. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again.